Well, I gave you the wrong cocktail then, because mine was the one with the hair in it. Um, so anyway. Bowie died. He did. Poor guy. Yeah. R.I.P. David Bowie. What's your favorite Bowie song? Um, the one that kept coming to mind was Modern Love. Hmm. Um, although I also like Life on Mars. Mm-hmm. Um, I also like the Bowie tribute song from Flight of the Concords. Oh, yeah. The, Bowie's in space. Bowie's this is Bowie space. back to Bowie. I, yeah. I read you loud and clear, man. Um, yeah, I, I actually, yesterday, I like there was something on Reddit or something that was an article mm-hmm. of a review of Bowie playing at like a state fair, like in the 70s, before he was super big, but he was still pretty famous then. Um, and the guys, it was a pretty negative review. It was like the music's kind of middle of the road. And like, if you get past all the glam, like it's kind of just not that great. And like, uh, I can't believe people spent $7 and 50 cents for this ticket. (laughs) And I happen to know that there's a Bowie written musical out right now in New York. Really? Yeah. It's called Lazarus. And it's kind of eerie now because it was released very recently and it's about a guy who dies and comes back to life. Interesting. And so it's kind of in his, his album that just came out is sort of about death. And so it's sort of, you know, he probably knew he was going to die from Mm. cancer. It's not like it was a surprise. So, um, probably there was some intention in releasing the album in that way. Mm. Um, and also the musical, but the reason I thought it was funny with the Seven Fifty was like, this musical's going, you know, tickets are going for like hundreds of dollars and people are reselling them for thousands of dollars. And like, now that he's dead, I bet they're going to be even more expensive. Oh, yeah. And so it's crazy. Like in the 70s, people would spend $7 for a ticket and now it's like he's not even performing and it's probably going to be 10,000 10, bucks to get a good ticket to that show or something like that. So mm-hmm. I don't know. $7 for a concert. I mean,. Yeah, I mean, it's the 70s, so maybe that might be like 15 or 20 of today's yeah. dollars, but still. I mean, uh, you know, I can't remember last time I paid $15 to get into a show. I hear you. I, I read you loud and clear, man. Um, speaking of reading you loud and clear, um, we're going to spend today's podcast talking about making visas that can be read loud and clear yeah that, that was not bad huh? of of all the the segues that you've done it's probably Both been been reading some stuff, Wilson. Both been like reading some articles about Tableau yeah. recently. Um, we we're talking about this before we started recording about this article we read that a guy uh, that we work with named Bronson Shank wrote called mm-hmm. uh, "Are You as Tableau Smart as a Tableau Consultant?" Mm-hmm. and uh, we kind of started debating what the word tableau smart meant. Um, I thought that was an interesting topic. 
How do you feel about that? <laughs> I thought the topic was fine. <laughs> you were you were kind of you know you were kind of in the middle of the road on that. Anyways, um, no, it's a, it's it's an interesting way of of course thinking about it, especially when you're thinking about sort of expertise on staff and of course who is capable and whatnot, right? Whenever we talk about software, there's people who are good at it and people who aren't. Um, and I think it's 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 an interesting conversation because it kind of informs about what we expect out of an expert of Tableau, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of leads us down that path of thinking about what, well, what is Tableau Smart uh, eventually that's there, right? So why don't we start with at least sort of this, uh, this article? Yeah, well, I think what Bronson meant was he was kind of about these techniques, right, Mm -hmm. that he thought were sort of key for a Tableau consultant to be able to know. And so Mm -hmm. it kind of ties back to when we when people at Tableau start in pre-sales consulting roles, they usually go through a bunch of different challenges that Mm -hmm. other people have come across in the field or that um, are interesting kind of technical use cases for Tableau. And Bronson wrote this article and he had a corresponding uh, session at the conference where he just talked about, you know, this is how we learn and this we have a list of topics that we go through and it really helps us advance our knowledge, become experts in using uh, Tableau Desktop. And um, if you want to be as smart as a Tableau consultant, you can go through these challenges too. And he kind of made a workbook with a list mm-hmm. and, all, and he kind of categorized them by different techniques. Right. Um, and I thought that was kind of a kind of a neat approach. Like I thought that was a good way to kind of take our internal knowledge and transfer it to right. the community. Because I mean, effectively, that's what we do with our internal, even product consultants, right? And these guys are really expected to be sort of experts around the product themselves. Uh, Charles and I, we both were in that role. Uh, that's really how we kind of learned. Um, it's by taking on new challenges. At the time, I don't think it was formalized. So we would take calls, people would pose questions of what our product can do, and we developed some new techniques from it. And ever since, yeah. a lot of these techniques got uh, kind of passed down along the way. Um, and sort of these uh, skill sets around either desktop or data management really got kind of formalized into uh, the way that we kind of bring up our own internal experts that's there. Yeah, I realized that as I was looking at this, that a lot of those techniques are actually quite creative. You mm-hmm. know, that they aren't necessarily what, I don't know, but I, I don't think all of them were necessarily what like the devs had in mind when they designed a feature, right? They're kind of taking those features to their extreme and finding yeah. cases that can apply to common customer challenges. And one of the ones that I thought was really interesting, I don't know if it's in that list, actually. It was mm-hmm. just something that I thought of was the... Um, multiple mark type cross tabs mm-hmm. where multiple colors or multiple measure values and things like that. Yeah. Um, the different conditional formatting. Cause I remember was, it, I think you came up with that, right? Was it you and Scott or was it you and Jesse or I remember the, like when the you, multiple columns one. Yeah. Um, I remember seeing it from Jesse. So okay. I think he was probably, maybe, maybe he heard it from somewhere else. It's kind of like, yeah. the and whole... now it's, it's kind of weird because now I think about that and I'm, I'm like, well, that's just how you do that. Right, like when someone says conditional formatting or something like that, and they and I know that they're asking about more than just kind of the single um, KPI type formatting, then I'm like, well, that's just how you solve that problem. But like, it's actually a very unusual technique, and it takes a lot of understanding and expertise on Tableau Desktop to be able to come up with that. Mm. Um, so I think that is that's kind of the the what Bronson was trying to communicate with right. this 
topic uh, was uh, if you're someone that's trying to learn Tableau and become an expert, you can learn from what the rest of the world has done. And we've got all these people that have spent a lot of time training and becoming experts and you can take a lot of the examples they've learned and, mm -hmm. and use, use that to become smarter. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, I think, what ta what Bronson would refer to as Tableau Smart. Right. Um, I, I think it's a it's worth noting that it's still somewhat of a narrow definition. A lot of sort of these things are sort of Tableau desktop specific type of skill sets and what you're capable of. It doesn't really kind of highlight, I think, what we oftentimes find important, to, which is really the storytelling element that's there. This is mm -hmm. something I think that's a very practice skill set. Uh, there's no rule book to it. There are some general guidance. I think that ends up being important. Um, but I think, of course, having more tools at your disposal when you're working with Tableau Desktop certainly helps, right? You're just more capable. But it definitely is uh, kind of stands the bound of um, making you effective. There's still, I think, a, a bit of a gap that's there. Um, yeah, the, the thing that worries me about that is kind of what I was describing, which is like, I, I started to just connect some answer to a problem to a technique, mm -hmm. right? When what really helps, at least as a consultant, is to understand why the technique works the way it does so that you can apply it to other situations. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just about what mechanically you have to do to, to make some sort of chart. It's really about analytic techniques and how they can maybe be used in niche cases. Um, so I guess, you know, what Bronson referred to as Tableau Smart is we might call the mechanics that mm -hmm. one's able to employ mm -hmm. with Tableau Desktop. And we might want to expand that definition a little bit. So you, you mentioned the word effective. Right. Um, how does that play into your definition of what this Tableau Smart term means um that was a really drawn on um uh, question there anyways uh yeah i like to have long sentences i've noticed that um the president does that a lot he'll he'll be talking and then he'll say something profound do you have a good impression lined up, or? Um, I, I don't. I don't know if I can do it off w without um, without some practice, but I, I think I can do a hello, hello. Maybe we'll come back to it. Anyways, uh, the question was effective versus <laughs> capable. I think yeah, effectiveness. I think is really the right application of those skill sets in the right areas. Right. Um, a classic example of this is uh, the whole idea of over-architecting a specific workbook. So you can obviously, of course, build a lot of things into your workbook, but what will make the data actually shine? What will put the data into the forefront that's there, right? Um, a lot of times I think we, we hear this from our dev team a whole lot. We, uh, a big initiative for how Tableau works is that we really want to make um, the technology kind of be invisible to uh, whatever we're really applied to. And, and in the same way, I think about sort of our own viz building to be very effect, you know, um, to tie into that as well, right? The the application, the feature functionality, all that really shouldn't play to the forefront. 
it should be about the data itself and focusing on what the data can actually tell us uh, mm -hmm. on that idea. So I think the effectiveness is really in that regard, right? It's the ability for you to be a concrete, and I know my answer is not concise, but a cons concise storyteller um, so that, of course, our techniques or some of the other things don't really become distractions. Right. So having the capabilities that maybe are, are part of what Bronson was trying to teach, having the, the techniques, but also um, understanding how to be effective with those techniques. Right. Um, so the other, other thing I wanted to discuss as part of this as kind of a preamble here was if our definition is the ability to be effective with Tableau, mm -hmm. um, how does that do? Do we differentiate between Tableau desktop and Tableau server in this discussion? Um, how do you feel about that? Like what, what is your, what is your thought? on whether this is a desktop skill or a, or maybe just a general Tableau skill? Do we differentiate those things? I don't know. I, I've always, maybe, and this is worth debating, I think. Um, I've always thought that the, the star of the show is Tableau Desktop. Um, possibly, of course, the, the both of us did really kind of start down that route initially. Um, and even though, of course, Tableau Server is, you know, services a lot more folks in general than Tableau Desktop, I think, when we think about basically what works against the data, um, what's going to generate new content that people are going to be interested in to look at, what is going to be the area that we will actually problem solve against some of the challenges that we face within data. It's really always going to be the tablet desktop, which is mm -hmm. our designer tool itself, right? Um, the server product really is the platform, right? It's the stage in which all this kind of plays against when we need to present that information on top of. Um, and even, of course, when we think about sort of the, the intricacies, the, the little bit creativity that comes with sort of how our product works, I would tend to actually argue that desktop seems to be the much more important piece or the much more complex piece behind yeah, the scenes. That's my, that's my thought, too. Mm -hmm. And it makes me a little uncomfortable to say that just because mm -hmm. I think when... I don't know if this is shared, if this thought is shared by our customers as well, but when internally, when we talk about Tableau desktop skills, I feel like people don't, a lot of people don't consider them as valuable as, as you and I do. Like, I think it's it, because of the fact that server is a more expensive product and it's a product that mm -hmm. is more, um, I don't know what the word is, more ubiquitous, I guess, more, more people use it. Um, I think makes people think that Tableau desktop isn't as important, but I've always thought that that was kind of the most important thing. And like what you said last week, which is kind of Tableau server is infrastructure, yep. like is really meaningful to me. And I was thinking about that a lot this week where it's like um, the desktop or in these, his lines have kind of gotten blurred with the web edit capabilities, but we're kind of using desktop as a shorthand for, I guess the creation aspect. Mm -hmm. um, desktop has, has always been, the place where the effectiveness that you mentioned mm -hmm. is, is prominent, right? The effectiveness of knowing what technique to use to communicate data in a certain way or, or knowing how to answer a question, right. um, tying together uh, the sort of creativity of and, and insightfulness of asking questions to right. a technical exercise of knowing how to answer them. Mm -hmm. um, that's where that's done. 
you know? Right. And so uh, it makes me uncomfortable to say just it's a Tableau desktop sk skill because I th I'm thinking of how the people that I disagree with will react to that. But also I think that's probably the correct way to describe it because, I, um, or sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, I, I think it's always going to be a little bit of a, a battle between two things that's there, right? Like more people will always interface with Tableau uh, server rather than mm -hmm. Tableau desktop. It, we, we know that as a fact, runs the same way in, even in our own organization where everybody does have access to Tableau desktop. Not everybody uses it as much as they use Tableau server. Yeah. Now, that being said, the things that they find valuable, the examples that they can point to is all content that is typically generated from Tableau desktop. So without basically the right content being on there, your server platform isn't going to be valuable. But I think, yeah, it's worth debating because it's really just one of those concepts around uh, a little bit, it feels a little chicken or the egg type yeah. concept there. Um, and, and I think we will probably cease to refer to it in the same terms because the the creation element is going to be more and more uh, zero footprint server based. You know, I think there will yeah. be, there'll be things that there will probably for a long time be things that you can only do in the desktop platform, but it'll be fewer things than, yeah, that yeah. are unique to it than there are now. Um, so, okay, so we, we've kind of we've kind of defined this Tableau Smart thing as the ability to be effective with Tableau mm -hmm. Desktop, um, and I think that's I think that's still in the spirit of what Bronson had in mind. But something that you and I both noticed mm -hmm. uh, when that article came out was that. Um, Another article came out uh, a couple months later that right. he also published, um, and I want to make sure I get the name right. Um, it was called "How to Make Your Own Tableau Application," mm. right? Which um, is a follow-up to the Tableau Smart article, but it is also like the title um, seems like a complete departure from it to me. Um, what was your reaction when you saw that article? I, I mean, I think you uh, Skyped me about it when I was on the road and I looked at the title and I groaned as well. Um, th there's a lot, of, I think, that gets elicited from the idea of application. Um, mm -hmm. where I like being associated to the idea of a dashboard. I like people thinking about us in terms of analytics, but application means something very specific to me. And I think it has to do with the fact that we, we, we see other applications uh, that or other platforms that people develop application on or that we get compared to and that's a very um, big differentiation between those two different groups of being a application platform versus basically a um, uh, analytics platform that's there um, but I think when you kind of go into some of the details around it um, one of the big things that I found was they a lot of the the, the feeling around why I was groaning was around basically the lack of context around when these things are important. Um, so there's, there are good skill sets there are things that people should learn. They're good workarounds, good, good techniques, but there is a very specific time and place that we should consider using it. Yeah. So Bronson came out with the, the, the first article that he came out with the Tableau smart one. He actually built a workbook and the workbook mm -hmm. had uh, the different challenges that Tableau pre-sales consultants will often do when they're new to learn different techniques listed out 
um, and categorized. As you, well, these ones are about table calculations, and these ones are about sorting, and these ones are about viz types and things like that. And he made a workbook where you could kind of click through and see each one and see an example of what the result looked like and download the answer if you wanted to see the answer. And it was actually a really nice approach toward organizing that content. But what ended up happening was he... Uh, he presented this workbook as a way, as a resource for people to learn. And then the response he got from a lot of people was, how can I make that viz? How can I make that application? Right. 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 And that was the thing that was sort of frustrating to me to hear about was like, he created this great resource that had all this really nice training uh, material that was intended to, to teach people analytics. And what they got out of it was this application development lesson that wasn't even intended. Right. And I mean, there, there's definitely always going to be curiosity around it, right? When you see an Excel workbook, especially when it's not pertinent to your own data, you, you try to figure out basically how did they write that specific formula that's mm -hmm. there or how did they, you know, what type of macros did they use, right? How can I replicate something similar along my lines that's there? But a big piece behind um, all this is really understanding what the... Um, what the, the end goal really is, right? Um, and a lot of, I think, the questions that we even saw from his first post were around, well, how do I, of course, replicate this flashiness to it? How do yeah. I replicate this one interactivity to it uh, that might not be, you know, that's very sort of specifically driven by the concept of application building. So why don't we actually talk about that? I think there's a, a concept that, uh, w w what is different? from a dashboard perspective, from analytics versus this concept of application that makes the two of us both kind of groan when we kind of hear about it. Yeah, I, I had sort of the negative reaction that you did as well when I looked at this article. And I think it's just the, the idea that we're sort of prescribing an application development approach behind Tableau um, and the difference between that and the sort of visual analysis concept that we think is very important. Right. So an application, if you think about an application, what the way I would define that is uh, designing an application to designing a program that people will interact with to, um, uh, to achieve some goal mm -hmm. rather than to learn. It's about clicking on buttons that will get them to a certain end result or something like that. And, and if you look at the example that, Bronson published. It's it's about organizing content. It's um, that's that's the concept behind it. And, and the article that he wrote about making an application is is about that. It's about how to make it so you can click buttons and, and have a result from that button up right. here. Um, that's there's nothing wrong with having those types of applications. And I actually do see the appeal to using Tableau to create those applications because it's easy to use and it doesn't require you to have to mm -hmm. learn a coding language. And um, it, it does have sort of this object oriented framework, um, but it's very accessible. Right. Um, and the data model that Tableau use can kind of be used to replicate a lot of different kind of coding concepts. So I have a slightly different definition um, and I think it lists different things for different folks, so it might be, of course, still valid. But in my mind, applications typically are not very data-driven to begin with. They're applets. They're people, things that people will interact with um, that will turn out to a specific result similar to the way that you kind of described it. But um, they might be somewhat um, data-specific, right? Um, and so they'll use information in a very specific way. 
in a very much way for gearing towards basically moving a user from step A to step C or D. Yeah, I wonder what it is about an application that makes it so it, it like by definition, not data driven in your mind. It's uh, I, and I think I it's funny because even as I'm saying this, there are specific quote unquote applications that are very much data presentation heavy. But I, don't, I think the large part is that it doesn't get to a very specific goal that's there. So there is really sort of a, 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 it spans that the application is a much more broad definition mm -hmm. than our dashboards. In one spectrum, it's something that is very not data driven, um, such that uh, you have things like a, a, a very typical use of the application is like a calculator, right? We're not presenting the information, we are leveraging it in some way. So this, this idea where um, data is really just a part of the input and we're really balancing the weight of the user's input into getting, of course, a result out of that information that's there. So it's a very balanced approach uh, of what that information actually is. On the flip side, it's also this idea where it might be not very specific and not very targeted, right? Um, it's not driving home a specific point. And I think that ends up being something that's kind of important about sort of our, our definition for application. It ends up being just a way for people to continue interacting um, and hopefully to get something out of it. And so you, you end up finding sort of these different use cases where some of it is very much so data is driven on the back end, other cases where data is on the forefront, but in either case, it seems to put a lot of emphasis on that user user interaction as a means for conveying that information. And I think that there's some dangers around that. Okay. So that's interesting. Yeah, I'm trying to kind of figure out how that adds up because like application developers have to know data and math and number concepts to mm -hmm. be able to build applications because it's just so ingrained in, in what an application does it pulls information from different sources and uses it in different ways but i guess you're saying that the fact that it doesn't present data it doesn't it doesn't it's the goal isn't to teach or inform it's more a utility that right. that's the thing that differentiates it for you yeah and I, I think you'll you'll find that it orientates more to that where the user input is provided a, a huge amount of weight to the overall design. Hmm. Um, and anytime we see that, right, we're basically saying that the data itself is going to play less and less of a role in the way that we make decisions. And, and that's sort of on the back of my mind how I, I'm processing through these a lot of application building exercises. Okay. So, yeah, I, I, I'm with you, Wilson. I, I hear you. <laughs> Um, it, it's, it's a tough thing to kind of define for me. And I think, um, I have this really negative reaction when I hear people talking about using, uh, Tableau as an application development tool. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's because, um, it feels like they're just kind of ignoring the analysis aspect, um, mm -hmm. or if it's just cause they're not doing what I want them to do. Which, which could also be a thing. Well, I think but, it elicits a few things as well, right? And so in, a, in our pre-sales role, um, it, it starts mm -hmm. to elicit things like uh, 
very custom type of interactions with the data. Things like, for example, breaching our read-only type mm-hmm. of approach when we're working with data. So we hear about applications doing whitebacks to information, uh, automatically triggering alerts, and, and doing things that are sort of driven by data, but also much more about interfacing with the user um, and gearing towards that. And there's nothing quite wrong with it, but of course, when we're thinking about, well, what will tell a better data story, right? We are departing away from those concepts. Okay. Um, And then of course, the other side around it as well, at least for me, it was when I was in post-sales, whenever somebody said applet, Mm -hmm. they were thinking of building in more and more controls. And that was always more of a nightmare when it came down to even fine tuning things for them. Yeah, and I think the 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 concept of visualization or, or just data in general as an informative or storytelling tool or communicative tool um, is sort of broken when you are trying to put a bunch of controls in place, which is it's sort of a fine line because we talk about interactivity a lot, and, we, and I think interactivity interactivity is useful, but interactivity that is that goes so far as to kind of make it so there's no story and no communication right uh makes it so it's there's not really any point in creating the analysis in the first place you might as well i mean you might as well just give the end user the ability to just ask whatever question they want with a tool like tableau Mm -hmm. rather than um just give them a bunch of controllers or give them a bunch of buttons to press right right? I've, i've noticed that I've had a lot of clients in the past uh, try to create these dashboards that have dozens of different controllers on them, mm-hmm. right? And my resp- I don't know if my response is, I don't know if I'm communicating it in a way that, that makes it easy to understand, but basically what I'm, what I'm trying to communicate is you're basically trying to design Tableau. Right, like yeah, you're, you're I, trying I, I, to yeah. use Tableau to design a copy of Tableau mm-hmm. because all you're doing is you're just saying, oh, I just want to give them the ability to pick whatever dimension they want, whatever mm-hmm. measure they want, and see it in some way. Why don't I just give them a copy of Tableau? Right, right, like, um, and that's the thing that I have a problem with. I think that's the reason I have a problem with this application concept right. is that um, Tableau is an application for understanding data, right. and when people try to use it to build an application, it's like saying well, we're just going to build an application within this other application yeah. and it doesn't it, it doesn't actually achieve the goal as well yeah. as just the, the original thing. If, if the goal, I, I think there's a little bit of Occam's razor to, to the whole concept to it, right? I mean, if the whole goal is to give people a way to summarize data, we solved that already. I think mm-hmm. we, you know, Tableau Desktop is an effective tool. People do need to learn it, but... Uh, it's probably much more flexible than anything that we can design out of quick filters. And the biggest problem I think is, you know, when we start to kind of veer down that path, um, there is sort of a, there's a lot of risks that that are just involved with it. And and we run into those issues because people, um, that's sort of the natural path that I think the history of BI has eventually led a lot of folks into. um, And we're asking them to make that extra leap. Okay. So, so why do you think, people gravitate toward this thing, this concept of application. Because I mm-hmm. I like to assume that people who are interested in right. making analytic tools or presenting data analysis to their business are, have the right ideas in heart. Like mm-hmm. they, they want to inform the business and make better decisions. And 
So why do you think this trend or, or why do you think people want to build applications with Tableau? What, what do you think makes them want to do that rather than do kind of the an analysis that we described? And there's so many ways to answer this one. Um, I think part of it is the history around BI, right? We've seen basically that transformation between basically providing, well, dealing with more and more data and still providing people with the information they need. Um, the solution that we've seen in the past with other tools, with other applications has always been, well, just give them a way to export the data and then they can work with it in a way that's effective. And it still makes sense in some way, but it's probably not the best way to cater to mm -hmm. our audience, right? Um, and so I think there's, there's a historical perspective to it. Teams are organized in a way that is very much oriented. Yeah, I don't like to think that's true. It might be, but I, it, it makes me uncomfortable to think that businesses are organized or tech, technology teams are organized in a way that they're just ignorant of what is useful just because they're adherent to what is historically kind so, of established. So the, the part of the problem, I think, is just the, I mean, we hear this a lot, right? The imbalance between what the report factory headcount really is versus basically the audience that they're supposed to support, right? Mm -hmm. At a certain point, if you are organized where you're supporting 100 people uh, or for us multiple different teams, all sending requests at the same time, uh, you're going to take shortcuts. And, and the unfortunate part around it is that you can't be as thoughtful <clears throat> when you basically are dealing in those situations, which is where we really are pointing to when with the whole regard to BI. It needs to be more thoughtful, more specific. Uh, it needs to provide information for users, right? Um, as opposed to just data. Excuse me. Um, yeah, no, I think the problem for me is, at least in my mind, the um, <clears throat> there's sort of a paradox um, involved in the concept of building an application to generate insights, right? Because oh. insights, uh, like insights that are truly profound. I think as humans, we find things that are profound, hard to describe, right? Right. But applica applications are collections of features and capabilities. Yeah. And so like, I think, I think this is where what you're describing is sort of the kind of status quo in, a, in how a, a technology team builds analytics or something comes from is um, someone has a data set or a visualization or an application that's useful to them and it's useful to them because they generated some insight from it right but if they're asked to describe what it is that's good about it it's hard to describe a moment that they realize something right, right? so they're going to describe well you know it has these features it has these buttons and right. i can do this with this button i can do this with this other button and then when they ask someone to design that for them, they're gonna they're gonna repeat the features, they're right. gonna replicate the features, but they can't necessarily replicate the insight. Right. Um, and I think that's just a, a sort of a paradox in using any sort of application to learn, right. but it's also um, well, it, it's how you repeat value mm -hmm. um, by just simply outlining it on paper, right? And so there are always these challenges, I think, that come into just our whole requirement gathering phase, um, where you want to be specific so that you don't come out with information 
uh, or you don't come out with a product that's so different from what you thought you could do that you have to make another request. Mm -hmm. the, the counterpoint to that is that when you're listing it out, without being able to see the data, without being able to work with that information, the tendency has been, of course, to describe the features that you like, describe the things and the, the uh, characteristics of the thing that you actually want. So you can't put your word on it, but you can start to describe what you want out of it, even if that might be a big departure from what might actually be useful um, or realistic or, of course, uh, the the most valuable approach out of it. Okay. Yeah, I think someday we're going to like come up with like what is the prime evil in the world today and it's going to be like the uh, the process of business requirements being sent to IT. Like I feel like that might be the the reason for all of the world's problems sometimes <laughs> because like there's just I mean and I think more it's not just that specific thing but it's like the 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 lack of communication that comes from like one specialist talking to another specialist and not having any overlap in their understandings of things. So so it's not global warming. It's not, nope. You know, poverty. It's Although <laughs> I mean, like, okay, so let me take this this a little bit further than probably it needs to go. Mm -hmm. um, like, if you think of global warming, like the reason that we haven't done anything about global warming as a society is probably because the experts can't effectively communicate with the people that can do something about it. Yeah. Wouldn't you say? Right. Like mm -hmm. people that people that actually have the ability to affect change. Um, do are not communicating effectively with the people that understand the scenario, right? right. Which is exactly what I'm describing in this business requirements process. So, so it might be the prime evil of all things. Yes, uh, I think I think it may be. Like if we were going to create a video game where you fought evil, like Diablo two or something like that, we would have. So they already have Diablo. Three. So, so Diablo four, 4 is going to be about the prime evil is business requirements, <laughs> and it's going to be a guy with a pocket protector, um, and it's going to morph into a horned demon from the underworld. Um, anyway, yeah. So I I think um, I think that's the issue. I think uh, tongue in cheek comments aside, I think mm -hmm. the the fact that right. um, that. It, it's difficult to communicate the what is actually necessary to mm. generate insight is is why applications emerge that maybe aren't as useful as they could be. Yeah, and I, I mean it's it's a problem that will continue to be harder. Let's let's face the facts, right? There's more and more features, more things that we can do, uh, but what will effectively be important becomes harder for us to distill that down. And I think we see that even when people are validating software. Um, it, it's definitely true when we, we hear about stories when people are trying to tailor um, their visualization down to, of course, what is effective for the end user that's there. And we saw it even when we were doing our BizWiz competition this year, um, even in the first round, you know, what was effective, what was not effective, right? We saw a lot of different approaches. And of course there was I think some consistent patterns that we typically saw from this. Mm. This is a difficult topic. I think I need a drink. Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind. Everything <laughs> <else>. <laughs> All right, let's take a short break. All right. This again? Okay.
so we have this drink here, Wilson. Um, and it's got basil and pepper and ginger. Pepper is kind of an interesting mm. inclusion in a cocktail, but I actually found it pretty good. And it's sort of, you know, the, the fact that it's just got gin and lemon, you know. Oh, yeah. It's a good winner. You can't really go wrong. Um, this one, I went a little lighter on the sweetness. Mm. I went a little more on, like, the herbs, and then I added, like, an herbal bitters. Mm. And I actually think it's quite interesting. Like, it's it's um, a little less. Like, the first one kind of just tasted like a lemon-based cocktail, which you can kind of There's lots of different versions of that. The lemon kind of overpowers it. But this one's a little more interesting. A little unique. bit more gingery. Um, the extra varnish, I think, does definitely give it. Kind of makes it smell a little bit different. Mm -hmm. I think the aroma affects it. Anyway, we call it, or I don't call it anything, but the guys in the book that wrote the the, the book that I based the cocktail out of call it a Bushwick spice trade. I think. Mm. Does that sound right? Does it taste like a Bushwick spice trade? Bushwick spice trade. Yeah. I haven't hung out too too much in Bushwick. Have you ever traded spices there? You would think just from to watch out for sandworms. <laughs> um anyway um yeah it's pretty good mm? i'm pretty happy with it all right yeah, pretty tasty but getting back to i think the question that we we ended with um we just did our first round of is was for customer solutions we're running it pretty heavily i think throughout uh the organization this year um, but we just, the two of us actually had the opportunity to review some of the things, at least coming out from customer solutions. And I think it kind of resonates to the topic of thinking about effective visualization. And I just wanted to get your thoughts a little bit around that. Um, what you thought was important, certain, certain themes that were there, and if there was anything that kind of highlighted sort of the point that we're driving at. Yeah, we've been doing this tournament internally at Tableau for a few years. And we've noticed that people have a lot of different approaches to how they do visualization. And mm -hmm. so we'll, we'll ask them to present a visualization, usually based around a certain data set or mm -hmm. based around some creative topic um, as part of the contest. And some people will um, take a very kind of simple data driven visual approach where it's really about the content and just just the the pictures that are based on data and some people try to make more of an application some people do uh try to really tell a story and make an argument and some people do more of a dashboard approach mm -hmm. that's more descriptive or, or kind of exploratory and we've enlisted ourselves as well as a bunch of different experts from within the organization to judge these and look at them and evaluate them and see what works the best mm -hmm. in a number of different categories um, we tend to look at kind of the storytelling aspects I think is the most important, but we're also looking at kind of, is the analysis correct? And is it designed in a way that's easy to interpret? And I think what we've found is that the most effective visualizations, um, at least in my mind, what I've found is the most effective visualizations, uh, tell a story and make an, make an argument, have a point. Right. Mm -hmm. They're they're trying to explain something and make you understand something as as the person that's looking at the vis. Uh, do you agree with that? Is that is that do you think that's the 
thing that's resonated most with you or is there something else? No, I think it's pretty consistent. I mean, if we actually take a look back at just this year's results, right? Um, I think there were close to 87 total entries that's there. I know that's the number of participants that we had. So some folks worked in teams. Um, but at 87, we moved on, I think, uh, 16 uh, in, individuals that's there. And looking through each of the individual um, pieces that, that actually won out of their groups that's there, it seemed like what was strong there were always that there was a story, an enthusiasm around basically mm -hmm. the, the story that they were trying to tell. Um, and they focused on that. And so everything else kind of faded to the background and that we were fed, we were basically led on a journey um, by the author himself. Um, and that's what people want. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about just some of the techniques that we saw, mm -hmm. right? Like um, if we want to look at maybe some of the specific visualizations that might be interesting, the, the ones that I'm kind of thinking off the top of my mind that really stood out to me um one is kaori tanaka's from mm -hmm. uh, a product consultant in um in japan um she made a view about uh cherry blossoms in japan about when when is the best time to go see cherry blossoms in japan mm -hmm. right a topic that i have never thought about at all mm -hmm. but um the thing that it made her view really powerful to me was not that it was particularly flashy like the design was mm -hmm. not amazing but the story was very captivating right mm -hmm. like it was clear that she was passionate about the topic it was clear that like there was a conclusion that she wanted to draw being like these you can actually and she came up with some like mathematical rules you can use to figure out if you want to see cherry blossoms in japan in a certain province this is you can figure out when to go you can mm -hmm. kind of predict uh when the best time is to, to go see them and that's what made it really interesting to me. And like, I, I ended up caring about the topic because the story was told so well, mm -hmm. you know, even though, you know, there are probably flashier or more expert right. versions of views that were presented to us as part of the competition. I found that one just there particularly were, compelling. There are probably things that you can find on the internet that will probably allow for you to plan a trip a little bit better or mm -hmm. plan, you know, be, uh, you know, uh, itinerary plan or anything like that. But what I found was interesting about that when looking at it was it was very oriented, right? It, the, the author ties shown yeah. through just from the voice that, that came with it. Yeah, um, and it was memorable, right? Like right. There, there's this concept that we're going to talk about in a minute called that it's about whether a visit is memorable or not, mm -hmm. which I don't think a lot about when I'm creating a visualization, but right. that one was the one that stood out the most in my mind when I was recalling the visualizations for right. the tournament because it was memorable because of the subject matter and the way it was presented. Yeah, and, and I had a similar experience uh, grading one of the brackets as well. I mean, I looked at one thing where, um, and I'll compare two people that at least I know them well enough that hopefully it doesn't uh, matter that I kind of list their names that's there. But um, uh, with the, the European bracket that was there, uh, one of the things that I saw was uh, between Ben and Jesse, for example, um, two very different approaches. Uh, and what won out for me in the end is ultimately just still the story around it, the interest around the data, what was exciting, what were the outliers that's worth telling. Um, there were definitely ways to improve it a little bit more, but you can see that they 
identified interesting information. Um, and that was one of the aspects that really made Ben's submissions shine for it, right? Here's something that's interesting. Here is relevant information about it. Um, now, I would have been more driven, I think, if it was a little bit more concrete. But you compare that, of course, to something that like Jesse made. And Jesse, of course, longtime veteran. He's been around longer than both of us mm -hmm. at Tableau. But he chose a little bit more of a sample data set. And with that, it was a very well done set of dashboards uh, to the point where I would say, yeah, we should definitely debut this as sales tools and different templates that's there. And so got great resources out of basically this competition. But at the same time, it really didn't drive home a point. It really just opened up that this is a way that you can kind of monitor how things are going. We're not sure what we're really monitoring, but there's a lot of information here. It ends up being basically kind of lost in the fray. You, you felt like the uh, you didn't know what the author was driving at. And of course, you felt more lost in the visualization um, than anything else that's there. Yeah, so I think what you're describing is this concept um... That is, you know, how do you make a visualization sit in your customer, your uh, your audience's memory, and mm -hmm. make them care about it, right? And it, it reminds me of this article that a, a Tableau guy, actually Robert Kosara, wrote a few weeks ago, or, or published a few weeks ago, uh, called "Presentation Oriented Visualization Techniques." It's a pretty short article if you, if anyone wants to look it up, but he talks about. Um, differentiating the concepts of analysis and presentation mm -hmm. and when visualization is used for analysis he talks about kind of the best practice that is kind of commonly accepted like uh, he talks about um, an analysis he actually talks about analysis as a session which I, I think is goes along with a lot of the things that we describe as during uh, a time period where you're asking questions of data you'll look at a bunch of different views and those views have to be simple because the only goal is to make you understand data mm -hmm. as clearly as possible but they're not necessarily memorable right and there's something different that you can do to if you're trying to make your visualizations engaging and and, and help memory of the people that are looking at them um, and i think that's a little less quantifiable, but he does have some examples in the article of types of visits that probably don't meet what you would call a viz best practice, mm -hmm. but they're memorable and they communicate information clearly. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought that was a really interesting concept and I hadn't really thought about that before in relation to how data is communicated. Um, it's, it's interesting, but I kind of want you to elaborate on that. What, what are we talking about when, when that kind of comes down the road, right? Um, what type of visualizations, mm -hmm. what techniques are we really kind of referring to? Uh, what makes something feel like it's going to stick? And I, you and I both have some ideas of this in mind. but mm -hmm. um, So he has a few examples mm -hmm. in his article. So one is an isotype is what he calls it. Mm -hmm. And this is... It actually is an acronym for International System of Typographic Picture Education. But you don't have to remember that. He calls it isotype. Isotype charts stack objects on top of each other. So he has an example of the article of uh, measuring maybe the number of uh, products that might have been sold at a, at a company. And the number of couches are different pictures of couches stacked on top of each other. And the number of lamps are different pictures of lamps stacked on top of each other. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's a bar chart, 
-hmm. but it's using this sort of um, this picture right. uh, that helps you memor uh, memorize or, or just remember what is going on in, right. in the picture. And so if you saw that chart in a, in a presentation, the idea is that, that in fact, the, the studies that he refers to in this paper say that people remember those yeah. types of charts more. So that's one example. So, I mean, yeah, I think, you know, there's a tendency for us to kind of gravitate towards modern day infographic design. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when we're thinking about what works well um, and you see a lot of icon usage, right? And I, that, that's what tends to kind of stick in my mind when I have a, a visualization that uses icons effectively mm -hmm. in the same way that you, you were kind of referring to. It still highlights the information um, the quantifiable information, but it does it in a way that's a little unique, a little bit different than everybody else. And then when it does it effectively, um, even like uh, the electoral map thing that uh, Adam McCann did a couple of years back and that I remembered and sent out tonight, um, that was memorable because of things like layout and uniqueness in terms of approach yeah. that was there. Um, I mean, I think we... Uh, we probably should mention the most famous chart of all time, which mm -hmm. is the Napoleon's troop movements during 1812 and 1813. The, the Menard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, which is, uh, again, probably not a visual best practices chart, right? Like if you look, it's kind of, it's actually, you might even say it is, but like it's, it's like a combination between a map and a line chart mm -hmm. and a time series chart and some other stuff. So like, if you just look at it, I think there probably might be better ways to just communicate all those different points of information. But the reason it's such a powerful chart is because um, the shape and the like, the way you can actually connect the width of that line mm -hmm. and to the locations on the map and the the like and the facts of like how many people died in that war like is really emotionally compelling. I think right. that's why it's such a, a popular chart. Um, so it's really funny that you bring up Menard because I remember actually going to one of the, the Tufty seminars and uh -huh. specifically that was the one piece that he loved. He, he thought that was the best example. Well, not the best example, but a really good example of a visualization done well. And one of the concepts that he kind of talks about is really the data ink uh, ratio concept that's mm -hmm. there. Um, I ended up actually kind of complaining about this a little bit with uh, some of the feedback with the, the VizWiz as well. And I think it kind of stem, stems as a little bit of a, a different way to think about visualization design versus I think what uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier with Kassara, right? Um, so focusing less on what is memorable and what is effective for mm -hmm. visualization. Um, I guess I could elaborate on it. Should I? <laughs> uh, yeah. The other, the only other thing I was thinking that I thought was kind of interesting about the Menard chart is that he actually the word tableaus in the chart, like it. He, I mean, it's it's he's a French guy, right? So he was he was using it to refer yes. to as like a, a, a part of the chart that was a graphic referring to the temperature yes. uh, at different times. But I, I like it. I I wonder if that was like an inspiration for the name of tableau. Um, it might have been part of it. Uh, anyway, um, but yeah, I do actually like the data ink ratio thing that you mentioned um, is sort of a, a little bit of a counterpoint to mm -hmm. that topic of, of creating something that's purely memorable. Right. Um, so yeah, why don't you go into more detail on that? Sure. 
So unfortunately, I had to close that off. But let me actually see if I can kind of bring that back well, up again. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say what the data to ink ratio is if you want to be pulling it up. All right. I mean, the data to ink ratio is the ratio of the actual ink on a page mm -hmm. of data visualization, right? So if you if you have a viz or a dashboard or a graphic that's supposed to represent some data, the data to ink ratio is the ratio of ink that mm -hmm. actually represents data. Right. Yeah. Um, so the way he puts it, and just to quantify it, is the one minus the proportion of graph that can be erased without loss of data information. And that's actually somewhat important, right? If we think about it, um, it's really about the minimalism around the design itself. So uh, what can we el eliminate, right? Um, everything down to, of course, the axes of the chart, the title around the chart. Are we labeling things that are actually informative versus things that are repetitive in nature? Uh, and a lot of times we are, we violate that rule. Um, the, the normal defaults, uh, that I think a lot of applications do, uh, tend to focus on over-elaboration just so that they can kind of outline a lot of those pieces versus basically an over-focus on uh, what is quote-unquote critically important. And that's something I think that, you know, no, well, software as we know it, automation as we know it, really isn't um, keen on defining very well for us. But if you want to quantify it, um, it's the proportion, one minus the proportion of the graph that can be erased. Um, okay. So, and I think um, there was actually, it reminds me of a popular like GIF that was going around a couple years ago around like how to make your chart better. And it was like, mm -hmm. it started with sort of a complex, uh, it's just a bar chart, but it had a lot of, a lot of extra pieces like reference lines and labels and access labels and colors and all these things and it was like eliminate this eliminate that eliminate that eliminate that and then you just you end up with just right. three bars and that makes it so much easier to understand actually the point and and, and take home the information so right. i i think there's actually kind of an interesting argument to be had for that because um when you take Kosara's argument of memorableness and having that be an important part of visualization. Um, you also have to ask the question of like, what do you actually remember? Right? Yeah. Like when I remember that picture of the couches and lamps, right? I might not actually remember which bar was higher. I might just remember that there were cute little icons of each item. Right. And, and so like, is that actually useful for me to remember? I was curious um, about the couches and lamps, but yeah. <laughs> oh. the, the chart I mentioned before <laughs> right. that had okay. different pieces of, things uh, <laughs> um, so like is is making a representation of data memorable is that enough or is it important to make the communicative element the, the thing that you're trying to to say memorable above the other pieces and i think that's probably what tufty would argue right. you would say yeah you can put all the ornamenture you want on a chart but um the you actually the thing you want to be memorable is actually the story of the data itself, and right. you can only do that through uh, making it purely functional. There's really five major principles I think typically around this, and I want to make sure we kind of explain it all the way through. One, it's above all else, show the data, right? Mm -hmm. Show what's actually there, um, and nothing else. Don't don't try to over fabricate information or other things that might not actually exist. One, maximize the data, uh, excuse me, uh, two, maximize the data or ink ratio. So the whole intent 
the whole goal of making something effective is to maximize basically that data ink ratio that we mentioned earlier. Three, four, and five really kind of relate to that point, but erase any non-data ink uh, that's on the visualization itself. So we see this a lot, like little points of formatting where there's a line between the title and the rest of the viz, uh, where there is uh, extra footnote and information or headers that are blocked off in mm -hmm. colorful ways that really don't add more information at it that's there, that adds more weight to the information um, that isn't actually important. Uh, erase redundant data ink information. So this is a classic example for things like spark lines, right? Um, axes versus basically labeling just the endpoints, right? Sometimes all you're conveying is the, the overall trends. And then finally, revise and edit. So this idea of reiteration through basically those uh, four major steps that's there. So the fun part, I, I think, when you think about this a little intently and when you actually kind of go through some tough these principles is that you get a very minimalist and overt I would even argue overtly refined approach towards visualization that's there. You'll end up with basically text, a visual, pretty much nothing else if it doesn't convey other information yeah, that's there. But I think it also ties back to that differentiation between analysis and presentation mm -hmm. because I think it, that actually comes down to whether or not the person looking at the data cares about it, right? So if you're analyzing data, you probably care about the result of the analysis for some reason, either because you're paid to or because you actually want to know the answer or whatever. Um, but if you're showing something to someone else and trying to make them care about it, you have to have something that's going to grab their attention, right? right? And if they don't care about the information, they're not, they, it doesn't matter how well the chart communicates the information, they're not, it's not going to resonate with them. Right. And I think that it reminds me of, um, of architecture. Or, or I guess any art you could probably make this argument about, but mm -hmm. it reminds me of learning about architecture because I think like there, there are a lot of architects that really like um, like Adler and Sullivan, like minimalist blocks of architecture, right. like um, like uh, the Twin Towers were um, were kind of a minimalist modern rectangle. And there's a lot of, like, it's purely functional. It uses uh, good materials and it does the job it's supposed to do. It's supposed to have a bunch of space in it that people can go into and it does, mm -hmm. right? Um, but the architecture that most people like is, are things like the Taj Mahal and ionic columns and things like that. They have yeah. a lot of orna ornamenture that are also functional, but have something else in addition to that, that makes it memorable and makes people feel like it's beautiful. Yes. So the things that, that draw an emotional response from people tend to be more uh, beautiful or, or ornate in some way. And I think that ties back to data visualization as well um, in, in the same way, right. where to, to make someone care about something, there has to be something that grabs them. And if, unless they care about, uh, like an architect would, the, the, uh, the function of the data viz, right. um, it's not going to grab them unless there's something else there. And I think we do have to kind of bridge a gap when we're thinking about data visualization, which is interactive, um, informative. So there's different iterations that we can kind of think about and the different stories that we can kind of work through. 
Um, and basically this, a lot of these principles are designed about basically flat graphics, things that are inherently, this is the information as it's presented. And so there's principles like Tufty about how to clean it up. And of course, other approaches around how to make it memorable that's there. Um, I think the interactivity, a big part around it is that it's really no different. It's a different mechanism of storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, you can be... I think that's it's a way to, mm -hmm. um, to make something engaging, right? right? Because when someone engages with something by actually interacting with it, by putting their hands on, if in this case, a mouse and clicking on things, mm -hmm. um, they are they're doing something to express interest in in the picture or the data that right. they're looking at and just the simple fact of them interacting with it and taking that small step mm -hmm. uh, engages them and makes them care in some way there's a counter I, th I think there's sort of a i don't know even how to describe this but basically sort of a drawing force to it where if you haven't compelled the user to interact with the information it's wasted space, right? The extra control ends up just taking extra space because you haven't compelled the user to further understand whatever we're trying to uh, click on there. Yeah. And I think that one is one of the things that people tend to forget. Um, more interactivity, yes, does tend to offer more options that are available, but unless you, you really give them a reason to use it, they're not gonna find utility out of actually that extra control. It's just something that takes up space. It's something that distracts them from the overall goal of what they're trying to understand from the piece. Yeah. Uh, I think that relates a little bit to um, the, the topic we've kind of been describing, but it's it's the Andy uh, quote. It's Well, it's an Andy Cotgrave being quoted, quoting someone else mm -hmm. um, that we were looking at earlier which is basically the top, the concept of data without emotion is worthless, mm -hmm. right? Um, interactivity is a way to make someone else emotionally invested in data. Like if you think about like the story points feature in Tableau, um, it's, it's a way of telling a story that gets people emotionally invested in the result because it walks through the beginning, the middle and the end of a data conclusion. Right. Um, and so the, uh, the thing that, that Andy was interviewed about on on BBC, right? Nope. Um, he was interviewed. No, he was interviewed. Sorry, let me, uh, someone was interviewed. I'll actually say it. That's there. Okay. Um, it's actually a, a quote that he he saw on TV on BBC. Um, I think Andy's been on BBC. He, he, he's definitely uh, worked the pretty closely. It was confusing with... for to me was because someone was quoted and then he quoted them and then yeah. was quoting someone. And then Andy also has done actually some specific work <laughs> with a lot of news agencies actually out uh, in, in London. Uh, but anyways, this is actually something that he saw on TV on BBC's Beyond Belief. Um, there was a show, uh, it interviewed Martin Palmer, uh, who's the Secretary General of the Alliance of Religion and Conservation that's there. And it really kind of quotes basically a direction that is about change and data and how it kind of relates but it, it, it's this uh the, the pope is part of a movement away from the idea that if you bombard people with data particularly scientific data that somehow it will lead them to convert to the way they live there is no evidence that anybody has been converted by a pie chart 
People are converted by stories, by narrative, by emotions, by the appeal to the heart. And I think it kind of comes down to a little bit of what we've been talking about all night. It's really this idea of the enthusiasm around the data and the effectiveness around communicating that enthusiasm around the data itself. There are challenges when people go down the route of, uh, so by the way, my quote definitely ended. Um, and sure? I'm just uh, <laughs> moving on from there. But there, there's uh, the idea, of course, of, you know, just give people data, right? That's what they need. That's what they've been asking for and just go down from there. But in reality, I think people want to make decisions. They want to act on decisions that's there. They want to actually take part and change. And a big piece around that is effective communication. Um, and we need to start thinking about basically the effective use around sort of our, our application, the right uses of it, um, that will help highlight the, the data itself as opposed to basically uh, going down the route of, well, every other BI product out there in the world, which is really just to showcase the data in a different way. Okay, so let's, I think that's a good way of tying it back to our initial thesis, which was, what does it mean to be Tableau smart, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so we talked a little bit about the difference between uh, being smart enough to know a bunch of techniques versus maybe being effective and being able to apply those techniques. And I think that was sort of our definition of being Tableau smart, yeah. kind of in, in the um, expanding the definition that kind of Bronson had in his original art article. Um, then we talked about uh, the kind of issues involved in this application development process and how being smart as a data analysis kind of translates to this sort of framework for building an application and, and why there's a, why that's problematic. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we kind of translated that into, you know, what is, what is the right way to present information, right? How do you make, how do you present information in a compelling way when, um, you know, when you're under the, assumption that you're just creating an application isn't going to be effective. You actually have to create something that's going to be compelling for other people. And so there's this sort of kind of middle ground in between um, the, I think the Tufty approach, which is just purely functional. And um, I don't know if, I don't think Kosara is even the right person to represent the other end of the spectrum. It might be someone like Alberto Cairo or something like that, who like really is more of an infographic based approach, but trying to create something that is just purely physically beautiful and, and, and ignores function to some extent. I feel like there's a middle ground in there that is both functional and also compelling. Right. Uh, but I think there, I think that definition of breaking things out into whether it's analytically useful or more for presentation is yeah. a good way to determine what something should look like, how, how to draw people in. I'll, I'll put another axis on there just to complicate it for everybody. But um, uh, the other idea is targeted versus basically uh, overtly interactive, right? You want mm -hmm. your story to be interactive. Part of it is to enable people to further understand the data and to kind of empower them to access the information that's already available. Um, but the focus around that is that if you open it up too much, you can't carve out basically the narrative, if that makes sense. You can't carve out something that is actually, uh, that, that provides utility to the end user that's there. And so you can be overly specific, instructive, prescriptive, 
in a certain nature. Um, and then the other side of it is being overly enabling, right? And what you want to hit is somewhere in between where you enable a conversation and you enable somebody who can challenge your thoughts and really validate basically what's the right move that's there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think, um, I think this is something that we will continue to kind of push on as we continue to, to record episodes of our of our show here because there's a lot to understanding the balance um, between what it means to actually analyze information and what it means to present information. And um, that interactivity falls kind of in between those things, right? It falls in a place where um, there is an assumption that someone has to create something for someone else, yeah. but it also uh, admits that the audience also has the right to ask questions. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that's that's the paradigm that's very difficult to find the sweet spot in. Are, are we reinventing Oprah's show in a way? Informative. I haven't heard anyone say the secret at all on our podcast. So I'm maybe, not... maybe, well, I mean. I'd like to be the first. Do you want to right? close with that? Let's see. We <laughs> we still have some time left. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, joking aside, I think there is. If you want to give away a car to everyone else that's here in the room with you right now, I'd, I'd be open to that. You wouldn't want to deal with the parking fees. The, I mean, we're, we're in New York. That's do, true. Do you actually... Yeah, that's what I thought. Anyways, joking way to, aside. Way to rain on my parade, Wilson. That's why I do. Um, <laughs> that said, uh, I think that's it, right? My drink is dry, so time for another one? Yeah. That's what it means to be having this fun. All of those things.